Hey everybody, I'm Michael. And I'm Andrew. And you're listening to the Endurance Innovation Podcast. On this week's show, Andrew and I have been thinking a lot about trail running. So trail running is quite an interesting topic, and I'm a perfect uh, example of just the adoption of this because previously I had the incredibly interesting and very triathlete mindset of I ran on, on a treadmill almost all the time, and it was either too hot or too cold for me most of the time. <laughs> so I just uh, I said, you know what, I'm just going to stay inside. I'm going to be a hermit and run on a treadmill. Um, and like benefits for treadmill, it is a little bit lower impact to get cushioning, but it is so boring. Um, I got a lot through, I got through a lot of Netflix shows, um, but really not the most engaging thing and definitely not a social thing to do. For sure. And I think that's, uh, that's a trap that, uh, a lot of both triathletes and roadrunners fall into is that they, you know, they, they find their comfort zone and then they, they stay there. And while there's a case to be made that, uh, at least in the case of, you know, road running for road runners and for triathletes who don't race off road, is that you're, you know, you're running on a pavement or excuse me, a surface that is going to be relevant for your races. It does sort of, uh, you know, limit your options and, uh, and, and does make for a less stimulating overall workout experience. So um, Andrew and I have been talking a little bit about trail running, and uh, he's told me that he's recently started to pick that up. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you, you know, found your way off the treadmill and uh, onto trails? So I'll give a a shout out here to my coach, Alex Vanderlinden. Um, He kept pushing me with, with my workout saying, hey, why don't you go find a trail and do something a little more interesting? And I was reluctant at first because I thought, you know what, I like the structured workout. I like being able to set my pace at whatever, 430 kilometers and just hold that. And I know that that's what that pace is. But it was also getting a little tedious. Um, And I also had a few issues with reliability of the treadmill. Um, So it turns out when capacitors blow up, they create a lot of smoke. Um, So that was one of my experiences. (laughs) And so far in trail running, Nothing has caught fire near me, um, so that's a big benefit. But um, yeah, so Alex Alex pushed me to do some trail running, and where I was living at the time, um, I was less than a kilometer for from a, a great mountain biking path, and it was uh, it was a hiking trail, and it it ended up being almost exactly a half marathon loop. Um, so I will admit, the first time I went and ran it, um, it was interesting, um, definitely more engaging. Uh, I had a couple trips um, just because when you're running on pavement, you're not used to picking up your feet. You know, it's a it's a very dynamic terrain compared to what I was used to. So uh, so I was going along and um, one of them, I was moving at a decent pace and I caught a root and just caught it with the, just the, the toe of my shoe. And I don't know how I didn't fall, but it must have looked hilarious for anyone who might have seen that. Um, yep. So... But like I recovered, I wasn't hurt or anything, just kind of embarrassed more than anything else. But it teaches you to be a little more conscientious of where your feet are going. And it's uh, because of that, it's just much more engaging. You can't just turn your mind off and just kind of cruise down uh, the side of a road or on a treadmill where it's nice and smooth. Um, But now you have to worry about foot placement and your cadence is constantly varying. And um, you're doing all these very intense little climbs, um, very short 
periods, but you get this different muscle stimulation than you're used to. And at the end of this first half marathon loop, which was like, I don't know, 30 minutes off my typical pace for a half marathon, um, which I had not estimated it being that much different. So it ended up being a long run. But uh, at the end of this, I was wrecked. <laughs> like I, I missed out on my ride the next day just because I could hardly move. And you could feel the difference in the, the muscle activation and stimulation. So it was, it was pretty cool to do that. For sure. And uh, I, you picked up some really good points that, that we're going to delve into in a little bit more depth. But uh, where are you now? Was that, that, that experience, did it sour you from, uh, from trail running or did you catch the bug? I totally caught the bug. Um, if anything, I went out there and said, this is, uh, this is something new that I can challenge myself with. This is somewhere new that instead of trying to chip you know, seconds off my 10K time, which is not over, overly dynamic, um, now I can take something that's a lot more variable and really, really put myself into it and really learn how to progress with it. Um, so yeah, definitely caught the bug. Unfortunately, I moved away from that trail. Um, but fortunately I also moved a lot closer to the mountains and turns out there's a, there's a few trails around here. Yeah. Who would have known? Um, that's a, that's a cool story. And it's, it's, uh, a fairly common one, actually, in my experience of, uh, you know, uh, especially triathletes being, uh, being kind of being very, uh, detail oriented and, uh, wanting to run their structured workouts just so, and, uh, there is certainly value in doing that and, and a clear inability to do that on a, on terrain as stochastic as a, as a typical trail, um, but the you know once uh, once folks discover how much fun it is and how stimulating it is and actually how how terrific it is for training, um, most people do stick. My my story was similar. I was uh, um, a woman I used to coach who um, picked up mountain biking, just offered to show me some trails in the Toronto area, and the uh, the Toronto Trail Network is amazing, uh, and it's a I would say it's a it's a hidden gem of the city. There are I haven't, I certainly haven't done them all, but you can probably uh, do loops of north of a hundred kilometers without ever leaving the trail system. Uh, just because there are paths on either side of most of our rivers. Um, and some, usually there's like a high path and a low path. So you can string together some really great, um, really great training opportunities without ever setting foot to pavement as it were. And I think that's actually a lot more common than people think. Um, I've lived in a number of cities and once you start digging around, uh, there's actually a lot of trails there and people either don't know about them or don't use them regularly unless, unless they, they tend to be out just walking on them. Um, but yeah, when you, when you start looking, there's a lot of different trails that you can, you can find. Uh, not all of them are super dynamic. A lot of them are actually paved and, and quite pleasant to run on, but, uh, um, but the, the trail networks and like mountain biking paths are a lot more common than people think. Right. And this, um, this ties nicely into uh, our little topic of how to get started in trail running. And uh, the best way is to join a group or have someone who is experienced show you the way, uh, show you the trails. Um, just because not only for the sake of, you know, knowing where to go, which is important because it's not as straightforward as running in a grid city. Um, so having somebody show you or having a group show you is terrific. And, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of cities now with the rise in popularity of the sport have a group that will go out on a regular basis and, uh, and run trails. I'll plug my favorite in Toronto and that's the, uh, the Solomon run group, uh, who run Wednesday nights. 
they're terrific, really friendly bunch and uh, an excellent knowledge of the trails in the Don Valley in Toronto. Um, but if you're flying solo, uh, there are maps and apps that are super useful uh, in navigating and uh, navigating trails and finding new routes. And that's uh, Trail Forks is my favorite. It's a mountain biking app or website. It was originally owned by Pinkbike, actually, and recently Garmin acquired them so that they can incorporate the data into their latest latest uh, cycling head units. I think I know the 530, the Garmin Edge 530 now incorporates Trail Forks as a, as a native app. And so if you're mountain biking, you actually get really good uh, trail data down to the point of um, getting getting information when you actually hit a trail fork which is where the name is derived. It'll tell you, you know, if you go left, this is such and such a trail. If you go right, it's such and such a trail. So it makes navigation much easier. But um, anyway, that's a little bit off topic. The The site itself is still up and the app is still available as Trail Forks. And you can really do some excellent route planning and decide which way you want to either mountain bike or trail run. And uh, the app or the website have pretty detailed route information. You get um, difficulty ratings. Mind you, it's a mountain biking um, orientated service. So the difficulty is for mountain bikers, but it, there is some crossover and you will get, uh, you, you'll get data like, uh, uh, route length and uh, total elevation gain. Um, so it's, it's invaluable if you're, if you're out there doing it on your own. That's actually pretty interesting. I hadn't heard of that before and I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Uh, so if nothing else, I'm learning something on this podcast. Yeah, cool. I'll uh, I'll absolutely link it. Uh, put a link to Trail Forks on our show notes. So, um, other than uh, them being stimulating, I think uh, Andrew picked up a couple of a couple of points that I want to explore a little bit further. So, um, it do, it definitely does relieve boredom. But Andrew mentioned a point um, about it being an excellent an excellent workout that he felt in his muscles a lot more than he would have. A road run or his or his typical treadmill run, and he found it a lot more engaging. So this is actually fairly well documented um, because of the you know the, as I said the stochastic nature of trails, the unpredictable nature of the terrain. You do have to keep paying attention, and as as Andrew noted, your cadence continues to change and your foot strike continues to change. And there is some evidence, and uh, I tried to find the article where I originally read this, and I could not. So apologies there. You'll have to. You know, take this as anecdotal evidence for me, um, but there is <laughs> there is some evidence that being forced to continuously adapt your foot strike and your stride is actually an excellent way to improve your stride. So to become more um, mechanically efficient, or in a, put another way, to improve your running economy. Um, that's you know the strict definition of which is the amount of oxygen you use for um, the amount of mechanical power that you put out. So um, being forced to continually adapt to the terrain forces your brain to find the most efficient stride and the most efficient foot placement for whatever terrain you happen to be on. And even if that terrain on race day is pavement, you are still going to reap some crossover benefits from having done some of the training on on trail. I wholeheartedly agree in that. And um that that actually reminds me, and this is something I hadn't pulled aside in preparation for this, but this reminds me of an article I read about that I'll have to dig up. But they were looking at something that they called uh, run entropy or exercise entropy, which was basically, um, for those who have heard the term entropy before, that's disorder. Um, so in this study, they were looking at how regular people's movements were. 
And they found that it actually went the opposite of what you would expect. So when you start out, when you're fresh, there's a lot of disorder in your movements and the, the movements aren't as repetitive. There's um, differences in foot placement and how you're reacting. And that they theorized that uh, it was because you're fresher and you have more supporting muscles available to kind of correct any mistakes. As you get more and more tired, your entropy decreases. So your um, the, the regularity of your your gait actually increases. And that's um, kind of what what you were saying there, Michael, about um, having to adapt and ha- having to learn how to place your feet differently. So if you're increasing your run entropy, um, that was characteristic of more uh, more experienced runners. So you're you're now providing yourself with this, giving yourself more, I guess, muscular adaptation and, and ability to correct a kind of a looser, more comfortable run. Um, so I definitely think there's benefits for on-road running with just the, uh, the off-road trail running just from that aspect. Yeah, that's uh, that's super cool. I haven't, uh, I haven't read the article, but it's, you know, it's conclusions, uh, align with the way that I, I think about this stuff and, and the, the bits that I have read. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, other pluses, you can actually string together some really nice endurance runs because if you are uh, someone who lives in a city, you know, it's pretty much impossible to run in the city without hitting lights. And not that lights are the end of the world when you're running. Uh, you know, sometimes it's actually nice to catch a little bit of a break. Um, you don't get those interruptions when you're running in a valley. Um, you might get the occasional railroad crossing or or you do have to come up and uh, cross something major, but typically you get far fewer of these interruptions. And the the training on trails can be really versatile so it really does depend on on the terrain you're running so andrew now that he lives in the mountains is probably going to have much more uh steadier grades and longer grades to climb whereas when he was living uh, near kitchener in ontario in southern ontario or for me in toronto in ontario um, there aren't really any very long climbs now as andrew mentioned on his half marathon loop back in his previous home, he had some really sharp, steep inclines, which are definitely a feature in the Don Valley in Toronto as well, but um, nothing super long. So knowing your terrain, you can you can decide, you can actually run workouts that may be not as structured as something you could do on a treadmill or on a track, but could still get you, you know, the required stimulus, the time, the duration at intensity that you want. So, you know, if you listen back to our conversation with Tilbury Davis in our first interview or um, the the interview we just did with Michael Erickson of uh, Scientific Triathlon and that triathlon show, they both talked about um, uh, parsing workouts so that you get whatever the desired duration at intensity was without really thinking too much about how to how to spread that out. So on a trail, you can, you know, if you really are looking to get a certain amount of elevation or a certain amount of sharp, steep climbing, you can do that provided, you know, the terrain favors it. You just may not get it in the, you know, super structured rest recovery prescribed way that uh, most of us are are used to seeing it. Yeah. And I'd say that's, that's definitely a good thing because now you have this carrot dangling in front of you. That's <clears throat> instead of just, Oh, I can back off at any time and I can go a little bit slower. Now you've actually got to climb that hill. Uh, cause you're not getting up at any other way. 
so it gives you that extra little motivation and it gives you a finish line that you can push for. And, and I, I like that. I think it's really engaging to have that. For sure. And uh, if you wanted, for instance, if you were if you were using a trail run for your long, slow distance, you could still do that. Um, and then the simple solution would be to walk the hills. Now, that that requires uh, stowing your ego um, for for some of us who refuse to walk hills. Um, and I think this uh, this this makes me think of uh, I think it was Steven Seiler who was. Uh, who, who first talked about seeing, you know, Olympic level cross country skiers doing cross training, running cross training, and would, who would walk up hills. And these would be people with, you know, you know, males with, with VO2 maxes north of north of 80, maybe even hitting 90, because the Norwegians are, you know, obviously the top cross country folks in the world for skiing. And they would be walking up hills, and it didn't make much sense to him. And I'm hopefully not butchering this anecdote too much. So uh, forgive me if I am, but uh, he asked them why they were doing that, and they said, "Well, because this is an easy day, and run there's there's just no way to easily run up a hill, especially if you're carrying a little bit of mass, and if that hill is steep enough, there's just no way that you can keep intensity low climbing a hill." And that's why, if you see, you know, trail runners who are a little bit more experienced, especially if they're doing, you know, an endurance uh, an endurance run, or if they're doing a long race, and of course, trail races are notorious for being extra long. Uh, at least some of the versions, they will walk hills. And that's that's a very purposeful and not a, it's not a cop-out. It's a smart strategic move in, in, in the race case. And in, and in training, it's a, uh, it's also a very, very cognizant, smart training so as to not overdo the intensity when the, when the stated goal of a workout is endurance. And if you're really concerned about ego, uh, maybe you can make like a mini sandwich board that says, I'm on an easy day. So you, uh, if someone's passing you while you're on a hill, <laughs> then, then they know. And then you don't have to worry about how you feel. Yeah, that's right. That's like, it's like this, it's like the swimmer in the pool telling his coach that, uh, that he's on a recovery week every week. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. So there's, there's some care that needs to be taken, but just that's the same as, as it is with training in any, in any train. But, um, that's something that I obviously, that, that I practice all the time. If, uh, if I'm trying to get in a little bit of endurance stimulus and I don't want to work, uh, I don't want to, you know, spike my, my workload, I definitely want to stay below, let's say below lactate threshold or however you choose to define that secondary threshold, anaerobic threshold, um, I will walk the hills because I know there's no way that I can move my, you know, 82 kilo frame up these inclines, even though they're very short without, unless they're less than 10 seconds in which you can, you know, unless you can climb in less than 10 seconds, in which case you can make the case for doing that at some intensity when you're doing endurance. And um, that's a conversation we should also have. That's kind of like a little bit of a, of a trick, but, um, if it's going to be any longer than 10 seconds and you're going to burn through your creatine phosphate reserves, uh, and go, you know, rely on that gly glycolytic anaerobic system, um, then it's no longer an easy workout. And you kind of, uh, you've, uh, well, you, if, if, if the goal, if the stated goal is, is keeping it easy and making it an endurance session, then that is not, uh, something you ought to be doing. For my own reference and for anyone else who may not have the same uh, biomechanics and biology background as you, um, I know the creatine phosphate energy system is kind of the, the really short burst, really high power one. Uh, how, how long would you expect to be able to draw on that before getting into the, the glycolytic supply? 
So the thing with, and we will have, we have to have a, a meta metabolism 101 kind of episode, but, uh, uh, to answer your question briefly, it's about 10 seconds. Um, now it's, it, it needs to be noted that all systems are active at all times. So you're never purely A, B or C, and those are creatine phosphate, um, you know, glycolytic and, and aerobic, let's say. So none of them, none of them are, none of them operate in a vacuum, but creatine phosphate kicks in when the demands go up. Um, very steeply, like when you're climbing a very steep hill, and if they, if those, if your creatine stores are reasonably well topped up, and they of course recharge once you deplete them and then reduce intensity. Um, if your creatine levels are fairly well topped up, then you are you can you can tolerate that. You can you can count on it for about ten seconds. It depends how well trained it is, but it's usually usually taken to be seven to ten seconds. Okay, and then this would be just a general explanation of why we see the uh, the critical speed or critical power curve in the shape that we do, where it's very steep and very high initially, drops off relatively quickly through the mid range when you're relying on the glycolytic system, and then when you get to the fully or partially aerobic and partially glycolytic, it kind of tapers down and hits a almost a uh, an asymptotic region where you can essentially go forever at a given pace. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a pretty good description of that of that critical power curve, and which is it's a it's a cool concept, and it's an important one to one to understand, and probably we'll dive into it in a in a separate episode. But um, as it pertains to trail running, if you are trail running and the focus is endurance, which you know ought to be kind of eighty percent or more of of total volume for most of us, um, depending obviously on time of year and, and focus, but uh, it should be the majority regardless of time. Um, it, it pays to go easy up those, those little short, sharp inclines. Yeah. I don't recall the hundred meter dash being held in a forest previously. I could be wrong on that, but, uh, I think most people are focused on endurance when they're out trail running. For sure. So, I mean, you could, if you're, if you're going to be, um, if you're racing short course trails or if you're, if you are doing, you know, if you're a triathlete or a runner, certainly if you're somebody like a, um, uh, a cross country runner, uh, where, you know, you do rely on your anaerobic, um, or glycolytic energy system quite a bit, then, then doing some workouts where you are taxing that system and improving your body's ability to, um, both tolerate, uh, you know, lactate and, and blood acid acidification, as well as, having a greater store of that anaerobic or W prime uh, reserve available to you, then, um, then that's a use, useful training to be doing. But for most of us, purely endurance folks who are, you know, focused on lo longer events without surges, then for most of us, we, we generally want to depress that system. So make it, make it less, uh, less dominant than it, than it would be otherwise. Excellent. All right. So, Say I want to start trail running and all I've got is my normal triathlete gear, which uh, the current shoes I'm wearing have virtually no tread on them at all. Uh, and if I get on the a slightly wet surface, I will basically go skating. Um, what kind of equipment would you want to keep yourself safe and to keep yourself uh in good condition for a trail run? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it, trail shoes are, are really kind of a, a fun uh, topic of conversation. And I'm by no means an expert. I mean, I've only been trail running for about a year. And as much of a gear nerd as I am, I, I certainly haven't exhausted all the trail shoe options. 
Um, there are similar considerations in trail shoes as road shoes. So obviously fit would be, you know, the no brainer. Number one consideration is that it has to fit your foot. Um, there are shoes of different offsets. And by this, we mean, you know, the, the difference in the, the thickness of the sole in the heel to the to the toe box so if we're talking about a shoe that has you know eight millimeter drop the heel is is a little bit thicker um some people prefer uh, a slightly flatter shoe for trail running so that is less of a drop but that i find is personal preference and that's generally my my position on on drop or offset as a whole is you know run with whatever you feel makes you run best and uh, run with, with whatever makes you feel most comfortable. Um, and really the big difference, as Andrew alluded to, is in the sole itself uh, because, you know, you because of the terrain varies so much on trails, then you need different um, different sole materials and different uh, lug design and lug depth to tackle whatever the trail is throwing at you on that day. Giving a shout out again to Solomon because that's a brand that I have the most experience with. Uh, they have a huge variety of shoes for for every kind of terrain. They have their their dry weather shoes, which have fairly minimal lugs and fairly um, and a fairly hard surface uh, that allows you to um, to run efficiently and climb efficiently. They have their wet weather shoes that have a, a softer durometer rubber on the sole, which allows you to, to grip, let's say wet rock, which is a very different surface than mud. And they've got shoes for muddy terrain, which have deep lugs that can kind of bite into that softer, softer ground surface and allow you to uh, navigate that without uh, well ending up on your ass. There's a wide variety of uh, of sole options, and that's really the the number one kind of I think selection criteria after you find a shoe that's comfortable is um, find a shoe that works for the terrain you're in. So if you're in you know rocky mountainous terrain, that shoe is going to be very different than if you're in you know the rainforest and thick mud because you you know for for rocks you don't need really deep lugs but you may want something with a slightly softer rubber in case you those rocks happen to be wet but if you're in mud then you do want uh, some lug depth because you want to be able to you want your shoes to be able to you know bite into that surface and and not slip but i will say that if you have just a regular pair of running shoes uh, road running shoes on most days and most terrain you're you're gonna do just fine um you know you won't have the same grip as you would on uh in in a trail specific shoe so you probably can't corner as aggressively and certainly if it's wet or slippery um, then you're 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 kind of in in a at, a at more of a disadvantage. I know we we were running through the winter, and we had a kind of a funny winter in Toronto where it was it never got super cold, but there was quite a bit of ice on the roads and on the trails. So during those conditions when there was snowy and icy, then you really you really couldn't uh, survive. Well, not survive, but you really couldn't have fun on the trails in a in a road shoe. But a trail shoe did afford you some a little bit of grip. Um, but uh, if, if the conditions are dry, you can really tackle most trails with a, a regular road running shoe. So you don't need to go out and spend, you know, $150, $200 on a, on a pair of shoes um, just to try the sport. It's a, it's a pretty low gateway kind of uh, activity, I think. So you'd mentioned the Solomon shoes, and that was actually my first experience with uh, with trail running shoes, and it was mostly by accident uh, or serendipity. So shout out to Air Canada for losing my luggage uh, because that forced me to buy some <laughs> shoes, and those are all that were available. Uh, so 
now I have trail running shoes thanks to Air Canada. <laughs> but uh, one of the benefits of flying with Air Canada, they can force you to try new things. <laughs> <laughs> That's a kind of a backwards compliment to them, I think. Yeah, yeah. So leaving my personal opinions about air carriers out of this. Yeah, the uh, the other equipment you have, um, well, noticing or going through my scenario of running that half marathon distance, that's starting to get pretty long. And, and it was, there were a couple hot days where it was like mid 20s. Um, and carrying water is something I found to be a bit of a challenge. So I had a small hand bottle, which is mostly targeted for, for gels, but I'd load that up with a little bit of water and ice at the start of the run. And it'd be nice and cool to start. Um, and I'd try to try to ration it, but you're definitely sweating more than 500 milliliters over the course of running a, a half marathon. Especially on trails. Yeah. As you said, it, it took you a lot longer on the trail than it would have on road, which is of course, no matter how fast you are, that's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing too, is they tend to be a more humid environment. Um, there's less wind there. You do get more shade, so there's less direct sunlight, but there's less wind, which means the humidity kind of sits there and all the, um, uh, the respiration of the the trees, uh, basically, and all the there's you know higher oxygen if you want to look at it that way, but uh, the it just feels more humid and a little bit more oppressive for a given temperature. Um, so I, I find that I sweat a little bit more on the trail. There's no wind to mm -hmm. evaporate the sweat either. So um, yeah, carrying water was one issue I had. The other thing too is just having um, if you're doing a remote trail run or a a not very busy trail you probably want to have a way to get out if you get injured or something like that. So having at the very least a phone or agreeing with someone like, I'm going to meet you at this point at this time, or if you don't hear from me in three days, come find me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. hopefully that's not the case, but uh, something like that, some, some means to extract yourself should the worst happen. Um, so I'm, I'm curious in Toronto, it's maybe a little bit less of a concern, but when you get out into the mountains, that becomes a bigger and bigger concern. So, um, what are your thoughts on that, Michael? Yeah, for sure. And again, I'll, I'm, I'm speaking from a little bit less experience, um, than, than certainly some folks just because I haven't really done trail runs outside of a metro metro area. Uh, but let's, let's address your, your questions one by one. Um, I do agree that, uh, that the lack of a lack of wind is, uh, is an issue in the summer. It's kind of really nice in the winter though. I'll tell you that. Um, but, um, yeah, you do get, you know, you don't get as much direct sunlight, which is a win. So, uh, the first thing I'll say is guys go back and listen to our, our episode on uh, training in the heat because we cover all of this stuff in, in a lot of detail. Uh, but carrying water is essential, right? Because there's not, you know, there aren't a lot of, you know, 7-Elevens on, on trail runs where you can pop in and buy a bottle of water. That's a very big pro in the in favor of trail running. Um, but that means you do have to be self-supported. Uh, so you have to carry your own fuel and you have to carry your own water. Um, and there are a lot of options for hydration vests or hydration packs that are ideal for the um, for the the task. And uh, really, the choice there depends on how long you're going for, and do you need to carry anything other than your phone and a credit card and a wallet uh, and water and uh, and some gels or some bars to eat. Um, so you can go super minimal if you're only out there for a couple of hours. You know, you may need uh, a bottle, uh, maybe maybe a bottle and a bit. Um, and or if you have, you know, if there's if you know there's a water fountain again in the in the Toronto Trail system, there are a few fountains that we, you can use to fill up. Um, so you don't need to carry more than one bottle generally. 
Um, but if you are in more remote areas, as Andrew pointed out, you definitely want to be prepared for the terrain. So especially in mountainous terrain, weather can change very quickly. Uh, so it's it's quite important to have uh, appropriate clothing options. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for, you know, you to start out and it's it's sunny and warm. And then if you're going out for a long time, the weather can change quite, quite drastically and quickly. And so it's important to have, um, you know, layer extra layers that you can put on in a pinch because exposure is a real thing and people die on mountains all the time usually they're you know they're more they're going out there for more than the trail run but uh it is important to have something to put on just in case the weather does uh does turn nasty so i think be prepared and have a plan are your your key points there if you're to distill it down into a very quick explanation for sure this gets into maybe uh, running fashion, uh, I would call it. Uh, with with road runners, you, you're starting to see a little bit more of a of a presence of hydration vests and hydration packs, and that's all coming from the uh, the uh, trail running or mountain running uh, sort of scene. Because it used to be that you would wear those, you know, you'd wear the belt with uh, four little bottles festooned on it, and now. Um, while while those are still still popular, um, people are starting to wear the the vests and the um, the backpacks a little bit more. Um, and it's purely a, you know a comfort preference. Obviously, a small pack is going to have more capacity for both fluid and and stuff than uh, than a uh, a belt will. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm seeing a lot more of them even on on road runs these days. It's it's interesting just taking a step back and looking at where some of the innovation happens in sport. So seeing trail running is kind of this new and emerging area of running where all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of needs that aren't being met and people are coming up with neat solutions like the vests instead of the belts and, and looking at different shoe designs. So um, from the innovation standpoint, it's very cool to see this happening. And I think a lot of it will trickle down to the road and triathlon running. Uh, you see the same thing actually with both mountain biking and triathlon, where there's not a ton of rules governing those sports. So that actually fosters a lot of innovation. And you see the same kind of trickle down, like some of it ends up hitting cycling. But in general, cycling is pretty tightly regulated. Um, and the UCI has a pretty, a pretty close eye on any innovations that are happening. And they generally like to be pretty traditional. But I just think it's it's cool seeing what sports and what areas the innovation is coming from. And trail running is definitely one of those right now. Yeah. And the obvious example, I mean, you mentioned mountain biking and disc brakes came from mountain biking, right? Now they're now they're yep. everywhere in well, not everywhere, but they're really coming up in road cycling <laughs> and they are uh they're they're penetrating the triathlon market as well. And uh as far as you know, as far as training, I would say that the, you know, the innovation on the on the side of, of the side of coaching and training is that you know, your coach, Alex, bugged you to to go run trails. It's He didn't just do that because he thought it was, you know, he didn't just do that just because. He thought there was some, some obviously, some training utility to you as, as an athlete to, to do this run. And this is something that I, you know, kick my guys to do as well. And that's something I do myself. And this is fairly recent, like the understanding that it's important to have variety in your training so that your training stays fresh and you don't get burnt out as quickly. It's important to, you know, as we talked about quite in depth, to have um, a, a variety of also physiological stimuli, in this case, the terrain, um, to make sure that you're you're improving, you know, running economy and, and neuromuscular recruitment. So I would say that that is, a, is actually a pretty, pretty important innovation on the coaching training side. Very cool. And I'm a huge fan of it as <laughs> in case anyone wasn't already aware from what we've talked about over the last uh, 30 or so minutes. Um, 
So, yeah, I guess, were there any questions you had from listeners that... Uh, I did actually. Um, it's uh, it wasn't even a listener question, but the it was a an in person question from uh, a trail runner, uh, someone I run with uh, at the Solomon Group, and um, the, it, it arose um, it, it arose after our heat training episode, and um, this uh, so so the background. Let me give a little bit of background of this uh, of this question. We just finished a trail run, and Solomon provides freezies at the end of uh, summer trail runs, which are very, very welcome. And um, <clears throat> we were all, you know, slurping down on our freezies. And I mentioned your point about how uh, phase changes are super effective at, uh, at cooling and how, um, uh, you know, melting ice into water is, is the best, way, is one of the best things that you can do as an athlete to cool your core body temperature. Um, go back and listen to that episode, everyone. And uh, this guy Charlie, who, as he as he was thinking about it, he posed a question, which I think I answered correctly, but I uh, I want you to answer it, Andrew. Oh. <laughs> and the question was, does it matter if it melts in your mouth or or if it melts in your stomach? So I'm not going to say what I said. I want you to answer, and then I'll say if I was if I was correct, or maybe I'll just hide my shame and say, oh yeah, for sure, that's exactly what I said. Okay, so my interpretation of of this would be. Um, <laughs> getting really nerdy here. <laughs> uh, there's something in engineering called uh, control volume analysis. I love it already. So basically, um, you're treating basically the boundary of your body as kind of the, the interface between external energy and internal energy. Uh, so if you take the energy into your body, um, so by basically biting it off and, and putting it in there, the, the heat that is... Uh, provided to melt the freezy comes from from basically your metabolism from your <clears throat> from your blood or from wherever in your mouth and that gets transferred to um, the central uh, basically your your core through the circulation system so I would say that there's not a huge difference in how it happens if you if you were to swallow a whole freezy, uh, which I would not recommend uh, you you might get a little bit faster. Um, uh, heat transfer and, and melting and decrease in core body temperature. But I would say there's not going to be a huge difference. You might avoid some brain freeze, uh, but you might cause other problems unless you're capable of swallowing a whole freeze. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I would say that in general, the melting, like the energy that is going to melting comes from your body. Therefore, your body as a system is decreasing in temperature. So that's my answer. Yep. That's pretty much what I said uh, with, you know, less, um, it, it didn't sound as impressive as your answer, Andrew, but that's that's pretty much what I told Charlie. Um, and so, an impressive meeting, nerdy. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, Andrew's Andrew's training tip uh, for the for the show, guys, is do not swallow whole freezies. <laughs> yes, you can quote me on that. Deal. Um, I think that's a, that's a sound place to wrap it up. Um, everyone, uh, thank you very much for listening. I'm Michael of X3 Training. You can find X3 at x3training.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm Andrew from Stack Performance and Four Eyes. And uh, the website for Four Eyes um, is four, the number four and then iiii.com. Uh, so you can check us out there and then there's going to be links to all the social media. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and uh, tune in next week for our, uh, our next interview. And uh, until then, if you like the episode, tell your friends, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. 